Welcome to Governmental Astrology. I'm Linda Rowe. Today is May 23rd, 2020, and today I begin talking about evolution. And it should take me about two episodes to do this. Um, evolution is one of the biggest, most comprehensive scientific theories that there's ever been. Um, it may be the theory that unites um, all of science at some point. That's how big it is. Um, however, because it's so big, um, there's some there's some dangerous ways uh, or some dangers that come out of evolution, and mainly from people who are trying to use evolution for their own purposes. Um, if, if you are one of the people that's using evolution for your own purposes, um, you need to see how evolution can become weaponized. And let me, let me give you a, a story just to sort of illustrate this. Uh, let's look for a moment at the Greek mythological figure, King Midas. The Greek story of King Midas uh, is a good explanation of what I mean when I say weaponized. Um, it's a story of the weaponization of value. And basically, King Midas wanted to be super rich, so he asked a satire to give him the ability to turn things to gold simply by touching them. But King Midas was not able to turn off his ability to turn things to gold. And so what he really ended up doing was turning everything in his environment to gold. He became a prisoner in his own environment because of this inability to do anything but turn things to value. So he ended up turning uh, all the food he, he was eating, all the water he was drinking, even his bath water, and then eventually his daughter. Everything became gold. Everything became something of value and was lost to him, essentially. Um, and that's evolution, too. Evolution can be um, a weapon of value, a weapon of worth, if you let it be. Um, it's really easy to make evolution, um, what do you call it, a competition of the fittest, a survival of the fittest. Um, it's really easy to use evolution uh, to be the strongest, to be the most intelligent, uh, to prove that one thing is better than another. Once you start using evolution that way, it's hard to stop. Um, okay, here's another thing about evolution. It's really not easy to understand. You may think it is, it's really not. And um, it actually took me years to get a good hold on it. So here we go. The foundation of evolution is DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, the double-stranded molecule of instruction for building life forms. The DNA molecule consists of a backbone of phosphates and sugar, and then each phosphate-sugar combination has a nucleotide attached to it. And the nucleotides function sort of like letters. So DNA is a structural molecule with a four-letter alphabet. And as the four-letter nucleotides fit together, they form a gene, which is like a sentence or a paragraph. And each gene essentially is able to make one protein. So the genes string together in a DNA strand, like words to string together in a book. We have 23 chromosomes, uh, with each chromosome being sort of like a book. And if you imagine a book, instead of being on a page uh, or a, a series of pages, you're going to imagine a string. And the, the words are, are hung on the string, or the, the string is strung through the words, uh, like one of those candy necklaces. Um, so you have this really super long string that's the length of all the information in the book. Um, it's, it's a very long string, and it's hard to keep it from becoming tangled, at least in my mind. Um, however, cells keep strands of DNA from becoming tangled. They do it all the time, and it's an amazing process. 
the cell has to make a copy of each strand of DNA, each book, uh, each chromosome must be copied each time the cell divides. And there are times in a, um, an individual's life when there's quite a lot of cell division. Um, babies, they're growing so rapidly. All of the cells are dividing, dividing, dividing. Even little shoots that you just planted out in the garden. Imagine how many times each of those cells is dividing. And of course, there's spots in our body that require lots of division, even when you're an adult. The inside of your digestive system is uh, undergoing cell division quite a lot. Um, so really what you've got is this book with a really long string of words, uh, which are formed, they're organized into uh, genes, just like we might organize uh, words into paragraphs and sentences. Um, the organization of the DNA molecule is into genes. So um, every time, as we just mentioned, you have to copy the cell. It needs to be copied without error. Um, it's, it's so amazing. You have to line up everything because you got the 11, well, the, the um, 11, you've got the copies of the DNA, uh, of the chromosomes. So you have to line them up you have to copy them, and then you have to pull them apart, separate them, put everything into the new, uh, into the two cells that result. It's it's an amazing process, and um, it's it's really sort of the string that we've been looking for. Remember, we're we're constantly on a search for the string in this podcast. The string that Theseus brought with him into the maze to defeat the Minotaur, except that it wasn't the Minotaur that he needed to defeat quite as much as it was the maze, because he had to be able to get out of the maze once he stepped into it. And bringing the string, the string told Theseus where he had come from, and the power of the maze uh, disintegrated as soon as he brought the string in with him. And so uh, once we understand what DNA is, um, we understand quite a lot about what's going on. And um, we've seen the string in other times in this podcast. We've seen the string in the mythology of Pisces. Um, the two fish are tied together with the string. Uh, Every time we find a string, we make a mental note of it because we're going to need it later on. And so we, we're going to make a mental note that the DNA is Theseus's string. So everything that we call or have called, I should say, life, our definition of life, it's now changing. Because everything that we've always called life has had DNA in it somehow. That's why we call it a life form. Um, it's, it's amazing what our, well, everything that we think is alive has DNA in it. And as we're beginning to understand, life is much more encompassing than simply DNA. Um, and so as we learn about viruses and we learn about the earth, um, our understanding and our definitions of all of this are going to have to change. Uh, so evolution at its very basic. Um, th those letters, uh, the nucleotide letters that you're supposed to copy without error, the cells you're supposed to copy without error. Well, there are mistakes, inevitably, even in a system where there's supposed to be no mistakes. And um, the, the mistakes can really add up. Um, sometimes a mistake in a f you know, the way that a protein is formed, um, on a macro level, it can lead to maybe a change in the, the shape of a, a bird's beak, for example. And so where a bird was able to eat one type of nut, uh, when the beak shape starts changing, um, 
the bird is able to eat a different type of nut much more easily. It actually kind of occurs the other way. The bird starts eating the other nut and uh, the DNA changes in response to that. But um, I'll put up some scientific literature about how um, evolution takes place with the, the mistakes that add up and lead to what we call our adaptations. Um, there are uh, all sorts of studies, and I'm going to talk about one that was a serendipitous study uh, for DNA because it was something that people began to notice. And this was sort of one of the first times that I, th I think people were... Well, it's, it's, a, it's a story that's used to describe evolution. So the trees in England were one color, mainly. Um, and then the Industrial Revolution came along, and the factories started pouring out smoke, and there was a lot more air pollution, uh, soot, that sort of thing. Um, so there's, there's the trees, the bark, and then there's this moth. And the moth was the peppered moth, which was really a two-colored moth. Uh, it had both light and dark on it. But at the beginning of the 1800s, the, mo the moth was more light than dark. But as the Industrial Revolution rolled along and the factories began pouring out more and more smoke, the bark of the trees changed color, becoming darker. And as it did that, the moths also changed color. And, and became darker. And the bark color is important because the moths hid out on the bark. They were camouflaged, so to speak. So back in the early, early 1800s, late 1700s, the bark was light. And so the dark moths stood out. They weren't really camouflaged and the birds could eat them. And then as the bark of the tree began changing its color to black, it wasn't the dark moths that were standing out anymore. It was the light moths. And so the birds were eating the light moths. And then only the black moths were the ones that were able to reproduce. So in a relatively few years, the majority of the peppered moths were now almost completely black. And the people had no explanation for what was occurring. They didn't really understand uh, how the color change happened. But around that same time, there was Darwin, and he was thinking and thinking, and he went traveling, and he was able to look at other animals besides just the moths. He looked at animals and plants. And Darwin started to put words to what he was seeing. He started forming the theory of evolution, uh, even though he didn't really understand how the changes could be occurring. And since Darwin's time, we have a couple of other animals uh, that are really good to study for genetic systems. Um, these animals, they have DNA that's easy to get to. They have short lifespans. Um, and so there's a lot of research that's gone on on certain animals. One of them is uh, Cenorhabditis elegans. It's a worm, a flatworm. C. elegans, C. elegans. Um, you can see everything that's happening, all the cells as they're um, dividing and everything, if you look at, under the right circumstances. Well, I've spoken about the fruit fly Drosophila. Um, that one has also made uh, studying genetics really easy. I'll put up some links and you can see some of the scientific literature around these animals. Basically what happens with the DNA, the DNA has instructions for building the proteins. Uh, the proteins are large molecules and they're somewhat rigid and they have to fold themselves up, the proteins do. And where DNA is, lightly, is tightly coiled and there's a process for coiling it, the proteins are folded and rigid. Um, but sometimes if you get a substitution in there and instead of one type of amino acid, you've got another one. Uh, the protein doesn't fold like it used to be, like it used to fold. And then suddenly, um, the way that that protein used to function, that, that function is no longer available to the organism. 
Um, these are called mutations, the changes in DNA that lead to differences in amino acids, that lead to differences in protein structure. Those are uh, mutations. We, we've got a bunch of diseases that are the result of mutations. Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, um, that's a, a loss of a gene. Um, it's a deletion in a gene, or it's a, it's a loss of some of the letters of the gene. And it's um, because of the loss, the protein that usually is made in that gene, it doesn't function. It's a, a protein that relates to muscular structure. And so um, it's difficult for the muscles to do anything when they've lost their structure. The, the molecule is called dystrophin. That's why it's called muscular dystrophy. Uh, sickle cell anemia also has a mutation. It has a mutation in the hemoglobin molecule, and that mutation completely changes the shape of the hemoglobin molecule in sickle cell anemia. Uh, Tay-Sachs disease is another disease that comes from a uh, genetic mutation. Uh, basically, it's a change in a gene that codes for an enzyme. And so if the enzyme is unable to be produced because it's folded differently and it doesn't work the way that it's supposed to, uh, the cell is no, able, no longer able to clean itself up. And um, it's actually a, a fatal disease for the people who have that mutation. Um, these disease processes are, are the way that they're, they come about. They're an important part of the theory of evolution, which sometimes the people who are using evolution to mean the survival of the fittest, they somehow forget about this, uh, that there's all these diseases that have resulted from mutations. Um, but sometimes when there's a change in structure, um, the individual is either able to function the same uh, we can say blue eyes is one of those mutations. People with blue eyes, they have lost a switch that turns on melanin. So the genes for eye color can still be present in that individual, but they don't have the switch to turn those genes on. And so um, blue eyes lack melanin, but they can still see. Uh, and you can still see well if you have blue eyes. There is some... It makes you a little bit more vulnerable to uh, sunlight if you have blue eyes, but not much. It takes years for that vulnerability to add up. And we've got tall people, short people, um, all sorts of, of differences that come about as the result of differences in genetics uh, makeup. Sometimes the the gene changes lead to beneficial um, results. The, the person with a mutated gene structure, they are actually better suited for a specific environment than an individual without the changed gene structure. Maybe it's a, a tree whose leaves are thinner than the other trees and so they don't lose as much water out of them during drought. Um, It, there's a number of different mutations and, and that lead to beneficial, making it easier for a, uh, an organism to live in a particular environment. But there's no better in that. It's just that it's a particular environment that the animal can live in. It's, that's just, as the environment changes, that animal's going to have bigger trouble leading, leading uh, or living in that environment. That's why there's no better or worse. It's, it's just sort of change. Um, when you use evolution, that's not weaponized. Um, if you want to know how evolution occurs over generations uh, for a long period of time, one organism that's been well studied and that really gives you an idea on how Mutations can build up and, and um, sort of, I guess, lead to 
um, a type of life form that we might really recognize, i.e. multicellular. Um, there's certainly a lot of life forms that are just one cells, but then we've got uh, everything we know is multicelled. And one of the organisms that provides this sort of method for understanding how you can get from single-celled organisms to multi-celled organisms is Volvox. Volvox is a type of algae, and it really wasn't until I took a class on Volvox that I began understanding evolution. Um, I took a, a class on Volvox from a professor named Jeremy Pickett-Heaps. He's now in Australia. I'll put up some links to both some of his works. He's a great photographer and he's able to tell the story of how the cell duplicates itself. Um, that's Jeremy Pickett Heap's big thing. Um, and then I'll put up just some other information on Volvox because it's a really interesting um, set of organisms. I hope you're seeing the pattern that I'm talking about with evolution. Um, individuals don't evolve. Evolution occurs across generations, from one generation to the next. This is the stepwise journey of evolution. And as we're looking at misconceptions that people have with evolution, um, one was that I already spoke about was that some, some people think that evolution is showing us how animals become better. We, we often talk about highly evolved animals. Well, there is no highly evolved anything. Uh, so we can rid ourselves of that belief. And that is a weaponization of, of evolution to say that something's highly evolved. Um, but another misconception that people quite often have is that we think that individuals evolve and, and that's a big thing with evolution. It, it's not individuals evolving, it's between generations. So populations evolve over time. It's not an, in, evolution is not a theory of the individual. Evolution is a theory of the group. And it's a theory of the history of a group. So we like to place our our emphasis, our attention, everything is given to the individual. And then we begin thinking evolution is for the individual, but it simply is not. Um, and once you take value out of the equation, let's look at like rats, for instance. Um, quite often, this is the problem with value. When we say that something is valuable, we're saying that we pay attention to it. We give it um, our energy, our force. Sometimes we want to control it if it's really valuable. When something's not valuable, we, we either pay no attention to it or we say that it, it doesn't really have any worth. There's no reason for it to live. We, we sort of go between those two um, Holes. Either it's valuable and we pay attention to it, or it's not valuable and we simply pay no attention to it, uh, or it's worthwhile and we allow it to live, or we say it's worthless and we try to kill it. Um, so, for instance, we look at rats and we, we, we despise rats and hate them and all of this sort of thing and say that they have no value, they're, they're worthless. Um, but when you take that out of the equation, you stop looking at things as if they have value. You stop looking at things as if or when they have worth. You just simply remove those categories out of um, your understanding. You're not, that's not the way you're going to look at the world anymore. You're not looking at it as what's valuable, what's not. When you look at rats just objectively as rats, it's much easier to realize that they're just trying to live and that in many ways they're just like us. And then you realize, ooh, rats are not parasites and never have been, so no matter how much you don't like them, uh, 
they've never been parasites and we have been. So uh, it's, it sort of, it gives you an, a new perspective on things. No matter how much you don't like a rat, oof, they haven't done as much damage as we have, that's for sure. So um, it's important to realize that evolution, um, if, you, if you lose, uh, I'm sorry, if you use evolution to measure value, something's better than something else, something is more highly evolved than something else, this weaponizes evolution. There, there is no survival of the fittest on earth. There is no worth on earth. There is no value on earth. And so when you put those things into evolution, it becomes weaponized. Back in the day, as the evolution, as the scientists were trying to understand evolution, their main thing was trying to understand why sometimes evolution moves very slowly and other times it moves very quickly. For instance, with the, the moths, that was very quick evolution. But the moths had been light-colored forever. They hadn't been changing at all very much up until the moment that the Industrial Revolution started, and then boom, really quickly. So scientists are trying to, were trying to figure this out. Why slow? Why fast? And that's, in some ways, the, the way that value got into the theory of evolution um, and why the, the idea of strength got in there. Because for a while, when they were trying to figure it out, they put it in there. They said, well, uh, the reason that the, the dark moths were able to survive was because they were stronger than the light moths. I'm not sure that that was ever the um, explanation with the moths particularly, but it has been with other things that we've looked at when we say, well, that individual survived because it was stronger. However, as evolution has continued on, the understanding of value, worth, and strength has come out of evolution. It's not in there anymore. Um, and if you're trying to still put it in there, you're either backdated or you're weaponizing it. So what is the reason that scientists have found out that evolution moves quickly sometimes and not so quickly other times? Uh, if it's not drought, if it's not uh, times of inundation, you know, super water, um, if it's not times of hunger, what is it that's driving evolution? And scientists have found out that it's viruses that are driving evolution. When viruses are around, evolution proceeds very quickly. And when they're not around, um, it goes much more slowly. Populations are able to get rid of viruses by evolving. The viruses find that it's easier to switch uh, animals, switch genuses, whatever, switch species. That's the word I want. Um, and here we are, we like to place blame. Uh, so from this, vir uh, this virus that we have right now, I'm hearing lots of people trying to place blame about why the virus switched from animals to humans. Well, viruses love switching around, number one. It gives them a, f a whole new food source, somebody who's not accustomed to fighting them off at all. That's one reason that viruses like to switch around. But the, another one is that the animals will also switch, and then the viruses uh, find that it's easier just to pack their bags and go to another animal. So we don't know exactly why the virus switched over to human beings at this particular point. Um, I think they probably found an opening and took it and they went, but it's nobody's fault. And for us to spend our time blaming is absolutely a waste of time. Um, and when you start looking at viruses being the driver of evolution, we, as I've mentioned before, we, we can see that the placenta uh, was largely formed uh, 
from viral involvement. Uh, we've got head size. Viruses have been uh, playing around with humans' head size. Viruses have been playing around with humans' uh, intelligence, what we would call intelligence anyway. Um, I'll put some articles up on this. I, I think I've already put up more articles on this, but I want to make the, the information available to somebody who, if you want to take a deep dive in evolution, um, you can, and number one. And number two, there's lots of stuff to read about it, but you might need sort of somebody helping you along to figure out where to go. It's, it, it's such a big theory that... Um, just leaping in and trying to study evolution is extremely difficult without sort of a coach taking you along the way. There are uh, plenty of classes you can take in uh, at the university as well on evolution. The thing that I've noticed that many astrologers, rather than spend their time studying evolution, they spend their time studying quantum physics, which I think is um, a mistake. Uh, it's not nearly as exciting evolution as quantum physics is. Um, but what it has to tell us about our world, um, it's, it's a lot easier to figure out looking at evolution than you can at quantum physics, that's for sure. Um, our major belief of humans uh, that we have come to believe is that we are the end-all, be-all of evolution, that we are the most wonderful, most awe-inspiring individuals, um, and that we owe our wondrousness to the progress afforded by evolution. Um, it's simply not true. Uh, on the other hand, some parts of it are, and if humans are the endpoint, a desired endpoint of evolution. It's certainly not because we're the end-all, be-all. It's something else. Uh, it's because viruses want it to be that way. If we are the way we are, and we are the way that we are because of viruses, then the way that we are is because viruses wanted it that way. We must ask ourselves why. What do viruses want with us? Uh, the, the only answers are extremely uh, disconcerting. Um, and yet we have people in our society that are not really looking at viruses and who are saying, well, what is there to be afraid of? It's a virus. Ah. Okay stop and start looking at the viruses and start looking at what viruses have done to us because uh, many humans like to go to their supermarkets and start screaming about genetically modified organisms without realizing that they themselves are a genetically modified organism. And so take your distrust of gen genetically modified organisms and put it onto our own evolution. What exactly are the viruses doing with us? Uh, there's your conspiracy theory right there. We need to figure this out. Um, I want to tell you about another evolutionary phenomenon. This is one of the things that, this is one of the reasons why I'm telling you that we are a genetically modified organism. It's this thing called neoteny. Neoteny. It's N-E-O-T-O-N-Y, neoteny. Neoteny is a phenomenon where the juveniles of one species become the adults of another. Um, so in other words, human adults are really juvenile apes. So we started out as juvenile apes, and uh, the juvenile apes sort of uh, underwent some genetic modifications, they stayed juveniles, but at the same time that they stayed juveniles, the sexual maturity ramped up and we became adults all the while that we're still juveniles. And so when you look at human beings, you can see us as baby apes. Um, I hear people talk about evolution sometimes and 
I hear these people who are talking about evolution, uh, they're sometimes against the theory of evolution. And sometimes the part that they're most against, the part that they absolutely hate, is that they say evolution says that we came from apes, but we really didn't come from apes. Uh, we really, we are apes. Uh, we are baby apes. If you look at us, <clears throat> we have huge heads in the proportion that baby apes have. If you were to take, um, let's say a baby ape is three feet tall, and then you take the proportion that the head length has to the entire size of the body, that proportion is the same proportion that we have. Our head length is the same proportion to our entire body. That's how big our heads are. We also have huge eyes in the same proportion that baby apes have. We look at our big heads and we love them and we think that they make us more intelligent, but really all that our big heads show is that we're domesticated. Um, you know, domesticated animals are genetically different from their wild relatives, but we never look at ourselves as that way. And who do we think our wild relatives are? We think our wild relatives are stupid, brutes, they can't do anything. We've been thinking that for years, but it's not true, and our scientific liter literature shows that. There was an article in a scientific journal not too long ago that said that Neanderthals feasted on seafood. There was another article also not too long ago that said that Neanderthals were able to braid fibers, essentially string. They were able to braid string which is yet another reference to Theseus's string. Let's grab a hold of those ne Neanderthals. They braided string, they made tools, they buried their dead and they were good artists. Need I go on? And by the way, Neanderthals are extinct. They went the way of most wild animals that have lived on this planet. And we are here, domesticated, along with most of the other domesticated animals on this planet that are doing quite well. We think Neanderthals are idiots, but then we humans spend much of our life thinking that our parents are our idiots. And the way that I see it, Neanderthals are our parents. We're the juveniles, and they're the parents. They're the adults, we're the kids. We have this, uh, we've had a long idea that children have the ability to change the world, and we do. Oh, I before we, I go on, I want to say one more thing about animals. We quite often talk about animals as if we don't want to be one. Um, there's scientific uh, evidence that a bunch of monkeys, not even apes, monkeys, and they're little monkeys, uh, they built rafts. They were from uh, Africa back in the day. Uh, they built rafts and they sailed across the ocean and they landed in South America. And this was way before human beings arrived. Monkeys building rafts, sailing across the ocean. Scientific literature on this. And yet we think that animals are stupid and we don't wanna be like them. And here we have this incredible story of these uh, seafaring monkeys. Uh, you know, the world is out there for us to find and we're just, crafting this world that we think we live in and we have no idea. So anyway, um, we humans have long had an idea that children have the ability to change the world. And here we are now that we find that we're children and not adults. Uh, guess what? We humans are uniquely suited to change the world in really big ways, which we're already noticing now that we see how much destruction we can cause. But ruining the earth was never our intention. And now that we're learning how to stand on our own two feet, because that's one of the things that we're supposed to be learning during this pandemic, how to stand on our own two feet, there is another path before us. Um, you know, if you look at the difference between adults and children, what, what is the difference between adults, adult animals? and children, baby animals. Uh, wild adults, I'm talking, and I'm, I'm not looking at animals that are domesticated, so 
Don't think of any animal that's domesticated while I'm talking about this. Think only of wild animals right now. Um, you've got the, the mom and the dad. Sometimes the dad is involved, not always. With mammals, the dad's not completely involved usually. With birds, uh, there's no better parent than a, a bird dad. Bird dads are the best. But um, although some fish dads are pretty darn good as well. Let me just say that. Um, and our human dads are becoming really fabulous. Let me also say that for a moment. We're, we're learning as humans uh, how important it is for dads to be involved. But um, this difference in wild animals. So let's move out. Let's talk about... Well, we could talk about leopards, cats. So you got your baby leopards, you got your mom leopard, and uh, she has to teach them. Well, first she has to hunt for them. So they're completely sponging off of her. Uh, babies, children, juveniles, anybody who's not mature, uh, sponges off the parents is a parasite in many ways. Um, the, pa the parent is responsible for providing energy to the next generation to get them on their feet. Um, you know, uh, parasites have had as big a hand as I think they've had in designing life forms. Of course, this is the reason uh, juvenile forms are always parasitic, but the animal, the adult animal, is without children, is able to stand on its own two feet. It's able to get its own food. Um, it's able to, however it gets food. If it eats seeds off of a, a tree, fruit off the tree, if it eats grass on the ground, um, if it hunts other animals, it's able to be a part of the system and to live on its own two feet. Meaning, if the system falls, or the system fails, that individual dies because the, the, the animal is dependent on the system. Now, we as domesticated animals, we're also dependent on the system, but the system is not the food chain. So the system is not the way that the tree is growing and if it has enough water to get it, the leaves out, uh, and if the if it doesn't get cold before the, the flowers bloom and then it can have fruit or not. So we in Colorado this year had a late frost and it knocked out most of our peaches on the western slope of Colorado, which is causing us uh, no end of grief. And we're very sad for this year. No peaches from the western slope. Um, that's a food system. So that's the food chain. If we were dependent on those peaches for our survival, um, and I'm talking eating, not financially, um, well, we'd go down with the system. That'd be the end of us right there. Uh, times of drought, you just die. But we're not. We're dependent on what this thing is called the food chain. And so food is a system of delivery. Uh, it's whether or not the farmer brings it to us, whether we live or die in many ways. It's whether the, the food truck can deliver it to our store. It has nothing to do with how brightly the sun is shining or if it's raining or windy or too cold. It has nothing to do with any of that. And it has everything to do with whether or not that truck can bring us the food. And so... <clears throat> That's another way. We are all children. We are all dependent on a system of food delivery. We are not living in the real world. Um, so we need to think about that as we realize how are we going to stand on our own two feet and how are eight billion of us going to stand on our own two feet? Because we don't quite have... 8 billion people living on the planet today, but we almost have 8 billion people living on the planet today. And the time to 8 billion, we don't know how many months it's going to be 
whether it will be a couple of years. It's not long before we have 8 billion people. So we have to figure out if it's possible for 8 million or 8 billion people to live on their own and to not be dependent on a system of food delivery like you have on a farm. We're stuck in our, what do you call it? We're sort of stuck in our own homes, which is like um, a cell. It's a, um, in the barn. We're all, we're all in the barn. The farmer's bringing us food. Um, it's kind of a horrific way to look at things, but it's, it's, as far as I can see, it's, it's the way things are. So um, breaking our dependence on food delivery. You know, we live in this world where um, you're required to work. I've said this before. You're required to work. We live in a, on a planet that supposedly has a scientific law about work. I don't even understand how that could be. The first law of thermodynamics, which says basically, by your, the sweat of your brow, will you work? Um, that is a bunch of a hogwash. It would be much, much better for us to have a scientific law that said, boy, it takes much less energy to come together than it does to split apart. That could be a thermodynamic except it's not doesn't have anything to do with uh, temperature, but um, it's much less energy to come together than it is to split apart. But we don't pay any attention to that. We just pay attention to this work. Everything's work, work, work. And we're not working on our own. It used to be when you worked on a farm that you were actually working for your own survival and that you depended on the food chain. You depended on the rain and how much sun there was and uh, whether or not some of the precipitation coming in was hail. Well, we don't depend on that anymore. We depend still on the supply chain. And so we're working for other people. These are big questions going on right now. And we have to answer it. How is it that we are going to stand on our own two feet? How, how do we become adults? I know one way to do it. And, um, that's what I'm going to talk about tomorrow because this is too much for me to say all in one episode. I can describe evolution to you uh, and I can tell you what neoteny uh, is telling us about ourselves, um, that we are genetically modified organisms uh, built by, by, by viruses, for viruses, uh, when we're asking why some populations um, are being killed by the virus much more readily than other populations, um, we end up blaming ourselves. And what we should be doing is looking at the virus. I don't understand why we're blaming ourselves. Uh, the virus is alive and it's doing things to us that we didn't ask to have done to us. And so we need. this is what we need to be looking at. I'll come back, I'm gonna go up in the mountains I'll be back on Tuesday to uh, talk more, uh, the second part of evolution. For right now, um, I guess I have one more message, and this is a message for evolutionary astrologists. Um, evolutionary astrology has to decide if it's going to teach people to become parasites or to become adults. And in some way, uh, evolution, Evolutionary astrology is participating in keeping us parasites. Um, we have all these things in astrology, domiciles, rulerships, power, weakness, maleficent energies, beneficent energies. Um, and the way that we look at the astrological chart is always from the viewpoint of trying to become more powerful, trying to become more um, influential, more able to do what we want to do. Uh, but really, when you look at human beings, our reality is that we're vulnerable. And so if, if uh, evolution is going to make us into what we would say is an individual, but it's really not, 
When we say individual, the energy of the individual is the energy of standing on your own two feet. It's not an energy of being all by yourself. And so if evolution is going to be teaching people how to stand on their own two feet, we need to look at the same things that we have there because it's a language and this language has come down to us um, from the past. It's, there's a reason that we're looking at all of these things. We have rulers and we have, um, I guess, subjects. I don't, I don't, all these, these things in astrology. And if we change the focus, instead of trying to become more powerful, let's see how it is that we're vulnerable. Let's sit in our vulnerability for a moment and see what that's going to get us. So we have to turn everything upside down and look at it, flip it uh, upside down, inside out, look at it in the mirror image, all of that stuff. And uh, we're trying to understand how it is that we're vulnerable, that the earth is vulnerable, that everything is vulnerable, because that's really our true essence. And... Um, it's going to take some doing to look at astrology from a perspective that we have never looked at it before. And yet, why has astrology passed down through the ages to us at this moment when we're standing at the, this new time, which we call the time of, of uh, Aquarius? And Aquarius, as we've all mentioned, is the water bearer and it's an air sign. Well, how on earth is an air sign a water bearer? What are we talking about? Well, look at the energy of the parasite for just a moment. The energy of the parasite uses straws to suck out energy from the host. The air breather is carrying the parasite on them. That's the meaning of Aquarius, this age of Aquarius, age of Aquarius. It's the age of the parasite. And um, once we see that, we're really going to be able to start examining things. So I will come back on Tuesday with the second part of the story. And I'm glad you're here. Um, I have a new phone number. It was given to me without my asking for it or even wanting it. Uh, and yet here it is. I can't get back to the old phone number. It's gone. So uh, my new phone number is 720-893-1581. It should work just like the other phone number did, uh, just with a new set of numbers dialing in. Uh, my email address gratefully remains the same, governmentalastrology at gmail.com. And as always, I'm glad you're here.